Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and we're pleased to be sponsored by Corporate Compliance Insights. Check them out for the latest news, events, and thought leadership in compliance. You can also find compliance podcasts such as ours in one easy-to-access place. Today, our guest is Mary Inman, who heads up the International Whistleblower Practice at Constantine Cannon. Welcome, Mary. Tell us about your background and how you got into the speciality of representing whistleblowers. Thank you, Mary. What a pleasure to be on your program. I'm a big fan. Well, um, I, I definitely what I do is I um, I spent the past twenty three years representing whistleblowers um, initially in San Francisco, and then the past three and a half years I moved ahead to our London office to head our international practice. And if you'd asked me in law school if I was going to be a whistleblower lawyer, I would have told you no way. I had no <laughs> I didn't even know that such a specialty existed. So, like a lot of good things, I just fell into it. Um, a headhunter approached me and told me about this job where I would represent whistleblowers only. At that point in time, there's only one statute <laughs> in the United States that allows whistleblowers to bring information to the government and to receive a financial reward. At that point, the Supreme Court had not even said, of the United States had not even said that that was constitutional. So um, I just was very fortunate that I joined the firm um, and then it has been um, an area that has grown exponentially. So the False Claims Act um, allows whistleblowers to bring lawsuits um, to the, actually file a lawsuit in the government's name if they see that federal funds are being defrauded. But since that time, we, based on the success of those programs, um, a number of our agencies, the SEC, CFTC, IRS, our securities, commodities, and tax authorities have also decided that whistleblowers are phenomenal sources of information to help them give a roadmap, an internal roadmap to the fraud. So they've created programs themselves. And those programs have sort of led to me being in London because they have international reach. You don't have to be um, an American and you don't even have to work for an American company necessarily to bring information about securities law violations or other things. So that's sort of a very quick story of um, how I came to be. And um, I think I thought I was going to be a prosecutor. We work closely with um, um, prosecutors and helping them bring these cases and regulators and enforcement um, attorneys. And I had so much fun. There's something so satisfying about having an individual client mm-hmm. um, and not necessarily being part of the big, broad government system that I've stayed in place. I really loved it. That's awesome. So it sounds like you found your compliance destiny, as so many of us do. <laughs> And will you break down for us some of the specific uh, types of solutions that lawyers in your practice area provide to clients? Um, You mentioned a moment ago that you didn't even know this practice area existed. And I'm guessing for some of our audience, that may be the case for them. So I'd love to hear a little more about what is your role and what would a whistleblower need counsel for? Yeah, so um, I'm glad you asked that question because there's two very different types of whistleblower lawyers. Um, my role is exclusively limited to assisting a whistleblower in taking their information and giving it to authority, an authority in the U.S. typically that can act upon it. 
there's a separate breed of lawyers that I, I respect incredibly, but whom I, I don't have that expertise, but are equally necessary to a lawyer. So we partner with them. And that's lawyers with employment law expertise and helping whistleblowers who inevitably, unfortunately, until we change the culture, and that's part of why I love being on a compliance call, a compliance show, mm-hmm. because we talk about that. But until mm-hmm. we change the culture, the typical response to whistleblowers, as we always say, it's like an autoimmune response by the company that we must get rid of them. Uh, and expel them. And we like to say they're the good bacteria. And when they expel them, it's often a retaliatory act. I can tell you that um, even though I'm not an employment lawyer, the employment lawyers I work with and the clients that I work with, inevitably they speak up and within, and you know, they've had fantastic performance reviews for years. They speak mm. up, they talk about something that the company doesn't want to hear about that gives them, uh, has exposure. And then all of a sudden they start looking at your expense reports and saying, oh my goodness, uh, I see this one problem in your expense report, we're going to fire you. So, um, so there's a, another breed of lawyers in that form that need to, and together we try and um, support whistleblowers. And in fact, you know, they need employment lawyers, they need um, whistleblower lawyers who help them with enforcement. Um, they need psychologists. Um, a lot of the role that I take is not anything I learned in law school, but I often counsel whistleblowers not to blow the whistle. Um, and that, you know, obviously may not be in my financial interest, but it is, you know, whistleblower, it's such a monumental ask, a task and act to step forward and be a whistleblower. You Whistleblowers are often radioactive and you may never be employed again in that industry. So that's one of the things where I think um, it's really incumbent on whistleblower attorneys to not just walk through with the whistleblower client, but in fact, their families as well to say, this is the impact that you can have. Um, and you may, you're going to need some strong intestinal fortitude to take this forward. Are you prepared? Do you have a financial, um, do you have a nest egg there to support you? Um, so those are a lot of things we need to do. Um, they're an amazing breed of people. Um, but often they come to us when they're an extremist, right? They've, they've tried to raise something and, and maybe they don't even know they're a whistleblower. They're just head of audit, mm. head of audit in the company and they are revealing something that people don't want to hear. Yeah. And so it sounds like certainly it's a, a tough role for the whistleblower. What about for you? What's the most difficult part of your job representing them? Um, thank you for that question. I think... Um, the most difficult part for me is not internalizing a lot of the, it's a hard, it's a, they are victimized. Um, and I think it's very difficult to not take that home with you every night. Um, because you want, there's two elements to it. They want to um, typically remediate a, a grievous wrong. So if you look at Sharon Watkins with Enron and you look at Erin Bronkovich with her story on, um, environmental degradation. Those are people who, um, you know, had such passion to do the right thing and that there was something horrible that was going to inflict upon the economy, the environment, either way. And so I think the more of um, monumental the fraud or the problem that they're exposing, the more retribution they get. Um, it's almost proportional. And so I think it's very difficult for me. One of the things to watch is to watch whistleblowers be blacklisted for their careers. So I sit with them and watch these people who are so vibrant, so trained, they're at the top of their careers. All of a sudden, we, we as society experience a brain drain when we sideline all these people. So I think that's the hardest thing for me to see 
is to see these people. Like I, and that's why I'm so passionate about compliance and sort of changing the perception internally for companies about who whistleblowers are so that they don't have to report externally at all and they don't have to go down that path. Yeah, thank you for that. And do you deserve, um, observe any particular differences between whistleblowers who are men versus whistleblowers who are women? I do, I do. And there's actually some empirical research and data that goes behind it. Um, I represent, and I've been doing this for 23 years, I've certainly had more male clients than female, and that's not because mm. I, I don't want more female clients. Um, <laughs> over time, with the likes of Aaron Bronkovich, Karen Watkins, we've started to see more women whistleblowers. But what the research shows is that women tend, when confronted with these sorts of issues of needing to speak up to raise an issue internally, they're more likely to walk with their feet and not report and move on safely to another organization. Um, but if you compare a whistleblower, a female whistleblower up with someone else in the organization, if they can join arms, and so by collective action, they're much more likely to act. So one of the stories I love to tell is that my client, one of my clients is um, Tyler Schultz, who is the Theranos whistleblower. Um, and he exposed Elizabeth Holmes and the incredible scam that she had with a blood testing company. And he, um, he was very shy to go forward. And it was only when he met uh, my, a, a, a woman whistleblower at Theranos by the name of Erica Chung, who was similarly shy. Was it, they were both sort of saying, are we crazy? Because they'd been siloed and made to believe that there was nothing wrong and everyone else mm. was Kool-Aid. And it was when they each met each other. And I think that's what women experience, that I'm mm. not alone. This is what I'm seeing. And in fact... I might be seeing it from a little different vantage point than you do mm. at the organization. So I'm confirming you and it feels less scary to speak out. And I think that is true because you can, you can pillory and vilify one whistleblower and say they're crazy, but it's hard mm. to keep saying like all of them are crazy. So the mm -hmm. more there are, the more likely it is you can have an impact. So I, I see women as collective animals. They, they would rather, um, work together. And I, and, mm -hmm. we, and we can talk at any other point about there's some technology that sort of we call it Tinder for whistleblowers that's trying to <laughs> help whistleblowers get together. And I'm so supportive of that because I would love to see mm. more women whistleblowers. Yeah, certainly it does, I think, give people confidence knowing that you're not the only one seeing that the emperor's got no clothes. Mm. Absolutely. You mentioned empirical evidence, um, and I'm aware that uh, there have been studies conducted that indicate that women are more likely to be retaliated against when they whistleblow than men. And I, I believe that's aligned with um, your knowledge in this area as well. Will you tell us a little bit more about um, what the, the, the facts and the, the studies say? Yeah, so they basically say that, and I think it goes along with what we understand about um, sort of stereotypical impressions of women, is that we they are, they are expected to be more of a yes person, more loyal, less likely to challenge authority. That's, that's way I think a lot of men um, are lulled into having women um, sort of working with them. Is I think that's the expectation that you will honor what I say. And so I think that's a lot. And when you don't, um, I think the severity with which um, people retaliate is really remarkable in terms of women more than men. And I think it has to do with this underlying expectation of um, women as more uh, supportive, go along. Um, and when they don't, I think that's part of uh, 
a view that the, typically the men who are uh, who have been on the wrong end of their report tend to be very um, vicious in how they respond. Hmm. I think this is um, somewhat consistent with other studies done that indicate that women get the short end of the stick in the office. Um, I believe that when uh, people in a um, heterosexual relationship, when that ends badly, it tends to be the woman that leaves the workplace. Uh, and that when um, women commit misconduct in the workplace, I just read something recently that indicates that uh, they are punished more severely than men as well. So we have this glass ceiling is probably not the right word, um, the opposite <laughs> of one where um, women just tend to be in an incredibly unfavorable position still in the workplace and, and we fight for equality in so many other aspects, but it seems when things go wrong, um, we also suffer. Yeah, I think it's that there's this higher standard that we're held to. We're expected to be perfect in all ways and when we're not, um, we're easy prey for um, embarrassing, shaming, and and uh, demoting. Mm. Mm -hmm. What's something interesting about representing whistleblowers that the typical person wouldn't know about this work? Um, that's a great question, um, and I hope this will be reassuring to your compliance office, which is that I think there's a perception, particularly given the programs that I work under where whistleblowers are afforded a, a financial reward, which can be considerable if they, if the information they give the government entity is used by them and they impose a fine. I think most people think that if you stick that carrot in front of a whistleblower, they will completely skip the internal reporting channels and go directly to, um, to the enforcement agencies. And that has not been the case. And in fact, there's great... Um, data specifically coming out of the SEC, um, who does an annual report, they do an office uh, annual report to Congress, and year over year, the report shows that typically over 85% of the whistleblowers who come to the SEC and file a tip um, have reported internally first. In fact, mm -hmm. the SEC program is drafted, the rules are drafted in such a way that whistleblowers are entitled to a range of 10 to 30% of the award. And mm -hmm. if the whistleblower doesn't report internally, that's a negative factor pushing you on a lower reward. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's just important to think about whistleblowers. And I think this, this goes with the cultural shift we're trying to achieve is that they're not there to undermine you. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, they don't always know that they're whistleblowers until you treat them like one. Mm -hmm. What they are doing is bringing forth information that um, can help the, the company correct course before something metastasizes. And so they very much want to further their careers. They've trained, you know, think about all the training that they've, um, and schooling they've had to do to get to the point where they are. They don't want to subvert their careers. Um, so I, I think my point is that you will not have whistleblowers going externally and, and that scary perception of them going to the FBI and going to the SEC um, unless you don't listen to them. And the other interesting data is they don't, they don't just give you one chance to listen. They usually talk, tell you two, three, or four times. So I think that's something that people, that's a myth, I think, that people believe that whistleblowers, because of the money, are just running forward and sabotaging their careers. Yeah, it's a huge proportion. 85% actually make the effort to report internally first. That's an overwhelming majority. Yep. And what does that say to the compliance folks about why aren't you listening? 
you know, um, yeah, yeah, does it, it, well, I think there's, to be a little defensive for compliance, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think there are other issues as well, right? So where compliance needs to pass that on. So we often do the investigation um, and then it's up to others to um, work on the remediation and um, any type of uh, disciplinary action as well. So um, absolutely there could be a compliance breakdown for sure. I think there could be multiple um, reasons for it. And I think this is a, a, a terrific warning for us in compliance Um you know, take things seriously and train your uh, management on how to receive reports as well. Because when people trust their managers, they tend to make complaints to to them. And the one of the worst things that you can have is your layperson manager um, conducting their own investigation, closing it, and no one ever knowing about it. So. I think one of the critical things is ensuring that all of your reporting avenues are receptive as possible to hearing the the very first time someone um, makes a report. I de- I totally agree. I didn't mean to pick on compliance. No, I know you didn't. In I was fact, just saying that. In yes. fact, I I think with client with compliance in particular, um, you're much more receptive to the whistleblower, and it's unfortunately the people that you need to bring it to who who often, if they're engaged in the wrongdoing, are not so receptive. What I yeah. love to say, which I think is really interesting. Um, picking off what you said is that uh, to be receptive is that there's great empirical data coming out of that I love to tout that's coming out mm, of please. graduate business schools in um, at GWU and at the University of Utah. Uh, mm. Professors Kyle Welch and Stephen Stubens took the Navex Global data set. So Navex Global, one yep. of the largest providers of internal um, hotlines and reporting mechanisms. They anonymized the data and they found that companies who have hotlines that are ringing off the hook, that have companies with more reports to their hotline, which is sort of counterintuitive, are healthier and have fewer lawsuits filed against them and have um, fewer investigations and the lawsuits that are filed settle for less money. So sort of proving what I've always known intuitively, but love to have data to prove it, is to mm. say that whistleblowers are your allies. They're there, mm. Mary's in the coal mine to tell you. And if you create a culture where they feel safe to speak up, it's going to behoove, it's certainly to your benefit. Um, there's a marvelous guy in compliance, Christian Hunt, who has tried to use business speak to describe whistleblowers. And I mm-hmm. love it. His term is that we shouldn't call them whistleblowers. We should call them forward indicators of risk. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> it's an accurate description. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I, I'd love to hear from you um, on the positive side. I asked about your challenges before. So now I turn to what has been your most triumphant work experience? Wow. Um, I think... This late in my career, the most triumphant bit for me was, you know, after 19 or so years in the U.S., to move to the U.K. and to find a really receptive audience there um, was really rewarding. I think at this stage of my career, I've been so excited about the prospect of the globalization of some of these programs. I hate to call them reward programs. But what the American model, which has been replicated in Canada and South Korea and some other countries, seeks to do 
is to do more than what most of the traditional whistleblower protection laws do, which is just protect you after the fact, but create systems where whistleblowers can actually take their information and have it acted upon. So I think what's been so exciting for me at this stage is to see um, countries like Canada, the Ontario Securities Commission for companies traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange, They've created a program welcoming whistleblowers to show securities fraud. And to see Australia recently um, flirt, went very far in flirting with the idea and came close and then decided no for one of theirs. Um, just to see and to be able to be a spokesperson for our experience and not to say that ours is perfect, um, but to be part of what seems to be a really exciting movement right now to find new ways to support whistleblowers. Um, there's the new EU whistleblower directive and the American system has a lot to learn, um, particularly in the form of, uh, retaliation protections. We have a very siloed approach. So it's really been fun for me on a policy side to follow a movement that is really, I think we said 1920, we said 2019 was the year of the whistleblower. I think you could say 2020 is the year of the whistleblower. I just think we're at a really, a time when, when whistleblowing matters. To people and it's a it's a and at that point we can create change and have new laws and it's sort of a high watermark in my estimation so I'm delighted to be on the international stage, mm. um, stage for that that part of it yeah um I've said it many times on the show but um the opportunities that you can have moving to a new country are, I, I are so unlimited so I'm so glad that you've experienced that and um and enjoyed a, another country I'd love to hear, um, I guess, your anecdotally or observations about what types of approaches have been successful for whistleblowers when they've tried to be able to stay employed within the same either company or industry. Um, you mentioned before that women may be more likely to quickly leave the company, secure a new role, um, and and then um, raise issues. To me, that sounds pretty prudent you're saying uh, oh, yeah. yeah um yeah um is there anything else that you can think of that that people who have successfully moved on from that chapter ha have done as opposed to those who tend to be blacklisted that's a great question and before i get to it i should say that um what we're seeing in internal whistleblowing reporting in the industry is and certainly in the uk there's now a requirement that um, whistleblowers be allowed to report anonymously and I think that that's a really big development. And it used to be there's a marvelous whistleblower um, who's French from who exposed um, some construction fraud and his uh, internal accounting fraud that his company, his name is Sylvain Mansot, and he was the only French speaking person at his Australian company. And so the hotlines back then, he could call the anonymous hotline, but everyone would know it was him. I mean, we've taken such great strides in two-way anonymous reporting that I would hope I think that fewer people will feel like they have to be outed now that we have these kind of channels that will protect them with their anonymity. So I just wanted to say that as a first point, but if they're not protected and they move on, the, the people that, it has been such a life-changing event for many of these people. Let me take Erica Chung, the Theranos whistleblower mm -hmm. as an example, but there are many people like her. Um, she, mm -hmm. she was so moved by the experience that she went on to, and I think these are the whistleblowers who tend to be successful, are more mm -hmm. entrepreneurial and decided that she would start a nonprofit 
Her group is called mm-hmm. Ethics and Entrepreneurship, and she wants to prevent the next Theranos. So she wants the ideas for her to teach um, companies at the early inception phase um, for some of these startups to have good corporate governance in place at the beginning so that by the time you become you know, Theranos big, you'll at least have these things in place. So the most successful whistleblowers I've found have been ones who have gone on to actually form whistleblower support groups. It never really leaves them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, they've sort of had to adapt. You have to be really adaptable um, mm-hmm. and resilient after you've already had a difficult experience. You sort of have to reinvent yourself. And so um, they've been the most um, successful um, but I think part of what so many of us are pushing for, and it, it relates to our work to try and work with the compliance industry, is to encourage people to, if you really believe that speak up is really important, hire a former whistleblower. Mm-hmm. It sends a, and not just in the compliance role, hire mm-hmm. them if you know they have the skill set. I think it really mm-hmm. shows. So I think um, we have a lot of work to do to help help these whistleblowers re-enter society. Um, but I think that's, that Thomson's Reuters is a great example that they hired Martin Woods, a famous uh, whistleblower exposed Wachovia Bank for huge money laundering problems, um, probably one of the biggest. They hired him as their compliance officer with that background in place. So I think we need to see more people like Thomson Reuters doing those sorts of things. Maybe we could do another tech solution like Tinder for whistleblowers where um, it, it rehomes them after their experience. So employers who are pro whistleblower hiring can jump on there, see if there's anyone with their skill set and open roles and grab them. I love that idea. I love that <laughs> idea. I think we should have a, yeah, exactly, a database that you can shop and see all of them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for, for the world, there's too many of them out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so to change gears a little for the very last question, Mary, I'd love to hear from you. Um, One of the things, uh, so actually Lisa and I spoke um, along with um, another great woman in compliance, Lisa Beth Lentini-Walker, about bypassing burnout. And what's interesting for me about your career is I think you're relatively rare in that you've been in private practice the whole time. Um, and that's a high-pressure environment. I mean, there's a reason why there's a stereotype that lawyers are alcoholics. Um, <laughs> um, and so understanding that you're in a high-pressure environment, um, you are probably subject to long hours, and if you're not now, there have been times in your career when you have how do you try to mitigate for burnout? What do you do to balance your life in that respect? Um, that's a great question. I, fortunately, in my work and my family life, I have a, a very supportive. We, we, our, our firm's whistleblower group is one of the largest in the country, and we have 24 of us. And we take a very team um, sort of level approach where our um, managers and our administrative assistants are just as important to our team as, you know, the top uh, attorney. So I take a lot of comfort. We meet every week. We work cross office all the time. I take a lot of comfort in my team and their interests. since we're all so involved in each other's matters that um, if we aren't helping, if we can't act as a relief valve and provide more support. We are at least providing moral support. So I feel, mm. uh, and you know, when you're engaged in doing something that you love, it's a passion, 
Um, and you have people calling you um, with exposing enormous problems that you want to see come to light. It's a really, it makes you jump out of bed in the morning. Mm. Um, but I, you know, but it's my family that keeps me grounded from, um, from spending all day long, 24 hours a day working on it. <laughs> I probably would. I have two lovely boys and a marvelous husband. Um, and, you know, moving to England was probably the best thing that happened. Um, mm. We took those new eyes and we, we um, you know, we still haven't seen half the museums we want to, but we've been taking it all in. And then, of course, I think, you know, Europe is so amazing to the travel opportunities. Mm-hmm. We, before COVID, we've traveled everywhere. And so um, they keep me grounded. Uh, they like to do a lot of exercise. I have a rock climbing son and a son who likes to um, surf. So they're trying to keep, as a family, it's hard to keep up, but mm-hmm. it, Thankfully for them, um, I don't I don't want to miss out. So that's what keeps me right. <laughs> awesome. Well, Mary, I have found this to be such an interesting episode. This is a topic that when when it is explored, it tends to be from the view of the whistleblower. And so hearing the lady behind the whistleblower and the important work that you do, which is um, really directly associated with our work in compliance. I just thought this was fascinating. So I'm so grateful to you for your time and sharing your knowledge and expertise with us. I love um, all of the data that you supplied. It really helps when people are able to back up their observations with the science. So that was well appreciated also. Thank you for your support of the podcast and the book. So much appreciated. And I thank all of our listeners as well. Well, thank you so much, Mary. I really appreciate it. And I just love the idea of expanding the idea of who can be um, in compliance to whistleblowers and women whistleblowers and the women lawyers who support them. I I think Mm -hmm. it's a broad church and I'm really delighted to be a part of it and, and, and forward the important work that you're all doing. We're pleased to stand beside you. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.